Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning, this is Jay Levine, your host and moderator of Antitrust Law Source. This is going to be part two in our series on Made in the USA. We're going to continue our conversation with Bob Tannis and Jared Klaus. And in particular, we're going to focus on how retailers can protect themselves against claims that products they sell that state that they're made in the USA may not, in fact, be made in the USA. Hope you enjoy. Obviously, selling a product in California... Retailers have a couple a couple options. One, they could consider qualifying the language that's on the label to say, you know, made in the U.S., uh, USA of U.S. and foreign parts, or they could say, you know, made in the U.S.A. predominantly of domestic fabric or or something. But there's really no foolproof way to avoid litigation here, other than completely dropping the made in the U.S.A. logo and slogan. For some retailers, that's really not a, uh, an option because that aspect of their product is what makes their product attractive and desirable in the eyes of their customers. And so sure. they, they may not want to drop that label well, in its entirety. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just also the retailer. I mean, I guess it's the manufacturer as well, and it can be part of the manufacturer's broad, you know, advertising and marketing strategy, and it's very hard for the retailer sometimes to put itself into the process and say, no, 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 you have to change your entire marketing strategy across the U.S. because I sell in California. That's, that's correct, and I think that's part of the issue is, is that while a manufacturer may be complying with the federal aspects of the Made in USA labeling requirements, that manufacturer doesn't necessarily know that that product is going to be sold in California. Now, in some cases, I think they could probably all assume that some of their products will be sold in California because of the size of its market, but, mm-hmm. but there's no, no guarantee that a retailer is going to know the specific origin. And, and in some cases, it's very unfair to put that on the retailer because uh, for most, it's not that most retailers are carrying, you know, just a handful of SKU numbers but they're really carrying a lot of different products. And for them to track the component parts of all of those products is nearly impossible. Even if you think about it from, a let's say, a clothing retailer like a Nordstrom's or a Land's End, it would be impossible for them to be able to track every component part of their products from through the manufacturer. I'm just trying to imagine what you would do. It's somewhat mind-boggling. It, it is, it is, Jay, and that's where I think it becomes difficult for those retailers and difficult to advise those retailers. You know, there are some things that retailers could do to try to limit their their liability. Again, you're not going to eliminate the risk of, of being sued, but maybe that you could eliminate the cost of the suit or damages should they be imposed because the, the product, A, complies with federal law, but maybe not necessarily California, or as Jared pointed out, is that we could see a number of other states enact similar type uh, legislation, and so we could have a patchwork of different laws across the country. So what a retailer could do is, you know, obviously in terms of their purchasing agreements, certainly to try to get representations and warranties from the manufacturer that all the component parts are made in the USA or mm-hmm. we're getting some specifics as to where that deviates. Now, again, that sort of puts a issue it's a, it's down the chain.
chain type issue because the manufacturer is also sourcing pieces and components for their product from others. And so the question is, how far down is the manufacturer going down with regard to being able to make that kind of representation uh, right. warranty? Secondly, you could seek uh, indemnifications from the manufacturer. So to the extent that a retailer would be subject to liability, that the retailer would seek indemnification from that manufacturer. And, and arguably, the manufacturer may be doing the same thing down the line within their supply chain. So, you know, and lastly, I suppose that you could try to insure against the claim, whether the retailer purchases insurance for themselves or requires the manufacturer to include them in as an insured on their policy, certainly could try to do, to do that. But the difficulty in today's environment is that the supply chain for most companies and for most of their products is so large and is so global, it's very difficult to track specifically where some of those components come from. And it's, and it's possible, for example, with a, a manufacturer that it may not be sourcing all of its parts from one other source. So let's say that a designer and manufacturer of jeans is buying zippers and, and those things, buckles and buttons, they may not be sourcing all of their product from a single, you know, from a single source either. They may be getting them from multiple sources. And a lot of times those multiple sources may be international companies where they're making components not at a one particular place, but they could be made in, in a number of different factories across the world. And so it's almost impossible to be able to track that, that, that a particular button or zipper specifically was manufactured in any particular place. Yeah, I mean, and the reps and warranties, if you go that route, you'd have to get it, go all the way back to the, you know, the original sub-sub-component product, which may be made from some small company in, in China, Taiwan, India, who, you know, may not even themselves know where they're getting some of their products from. That's absolutely correct. And so any, again, thinking about it from the other side, so... If I'm representing the manufacturer, and I have a number of manufacturing clients as well that sell to retailers, so looking at that, if a retailer came to us and said, you know, we need you to make this specific representation or warranty to us uh, about the origin of these products, I, as the manufacturer, am going to have some difficulty difficulty tracking it. And so, in essence, what I would try to do is to qualify that representation, whether it's to our knowledge or you know, some material component aspects to the product. And that may be suitable for most instances when you're talking about federal law, but with California strict liability, a material compliance is not going to be good enough and would subject you to liability. And in those cases, that would that qualification is going to limit the obligation to indemnify the, the retailer on, on, uh, by the manufacturer. So, again, I think that statute California being diverse from the uh, federal statute is really going to make things very complicated for retailers if they're going to in any way need to uh, make the claim that the product was made in the USA. Yeah. I, I'm, it'll be interest, interesting to see whether kind of a good faith defense gets developed in these cases. I know in the FTC context, as long as you have made reasonable efforts to obtain substantiation of whatever your advertising claim 
may be, whether it's made in the USA or that, you know, the diet pill will make you lose 10 pounds a week. As long as you use reasonable efforts to obtain that substantiation from the manufacturer or, or the like, the retailer may very well not be subject to, you know, civil action, at least from the FTC. And it'll be interesting to see whether, as these cases wind through the courts, whether some similar standard ends up becoming part of a good faith defense. So far, it doesn't sound like it, but... Um, well, Dave, some... Dave the, uh, the, the problem with a good faith defense, even if, <laughs> even if one develops, the problem with a good faith, faith defense is that it's an issue of fact. Yeah. So it's not it's not an issue that a retailer or a manufacturer can obtain can obtain a cheap exit from a lawsuit on by filing a motion to dismiss. It's a it's an issue oh. that they might have to take through very expensive discovery process and, and possibly even to trial, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in the process. So e- you know even that would still represent a significant risk and cost to to retailers with California law. Yeah, the divergence, the divergence of California from the federal statute has really put the uh, put retailers in a very difficult position with regard to the strict liability aspects of the language and really really just puts them in a very difficult position to be able to comply with the California provisions. Yeah, no, you guys are right. Absolutely. I mean, whether you can prevail on a good faith at the end of the day, it's going to cost you a pretty penny to get there. and. And just the internal compliance costs of trying to, you know, meet all these patchwork or assume, you know, would be patchwork regimes is going to be enormous. It's interesting because we're seeing, you know, more and more consumer statutes either being enacted or revived or broadened. And it's a, uh, a one has to step back for a second and sort of look at your own kind of corporate strategy and think, Okay, well, you know, what can I do kind of proactively to protect myself on any given contract? You know, as Bob mentioned, you can try indemnification and stuff like that. But I mean, just from a more corporate infrastructure uh, perspective, you know, what are some of the things we can do proactively to try to make sure that, you know, we don't get in trouble or that we can exercise you know, due diligence and, and damage control should something happen. I mean, are, are there things that we can do now, Jared? Knowledge is, is really power here. I mean, you know, retailers and manufacturers, they have to be aware of laws that are being enacted, court decisions that are coming down, such as this quick set ruling in California that gave rise to these, this explosion and made the USA claims. They have to be aware of what people are saying about their products on social media. You know, are people complaining, as in the case of Land's End, you know, oh, the, well, the company says it's made in the USA on its website, but I just got the product in the mail, and uh, it says it's made in China. By monitoring the social media sites and monitoring what people are saying about your products, you might be able to take steps to at least mitigate your liability before your your slap of a lawsuit. You know, also, you need to be aware of, of what's happening in your industry. Are other manufacturers or retailers in your industry being targeted for made in the USA claims or for some other type of uh, alleged consumer violation? So essentially, you you can see what they're doing that's getting them in trouble and not do it. Um, <laughs> and and it's, sometimes it's, it's as simple as that. 
Right. Uh, I think it's also forcing retailers to have a better sense of their supply chain to understand oh. that, to understand that in greater detail. You know, we have a similar example of supply chain type issues with the recent SEC enactment of the conflict mineral rules, which requires publicly traded companies to disclose whether their products contain, you know, conflict minerals from that are uh, sourced from certain parts of Africa. And what it's forced is a very difficult and complex process of a self-certification where, where companies are asking the various individuals within their supply chain to make certifications to them as to the, as to the content. And, and so I could see something similar here, but it's by no means that example of the conflict minerals by no means been foolproof it's proved to be very complicated. It's very, it's very convoluted and very complex, again, because of the global environment that we live in, that it's just difficult to track each and every product and as to the, its point of origin or its content. And so I think retailers are going to have to spend a little bit more time understanding their supply chain and really maybe rethinking the importance of that made in the USA label. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I was thinking, you know, how much value, I, obviously, you know, the country's attacked and, you know, we, we want to support the USA and the Made in USA does have a lot of value. But I, I wonder from a consumer perspective, when they see the Made in USA, how many people really think that that representation means that every single molecule of the product was actually made and assembled in the U.S.? That's a very good point. Actually, the Supreme Court of California, that quickset decision that really gave rise to these claims, contained a discussion of why it thinks that the Made in the USA label is important to consumers, and, and it noted that consumers want to buy Made in the USA products because they perceive them as being better quality. You know, they're, they're patriotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to support American jobs. But as you said, you know, if a pair of jeans is 99.9% made in the U.S. and just has a single rivet that's been made in China, aren't they still doing those things? And so what we might see, I think, in, in, these, in some of these California cases, and again, this will be an issue of fact that you know, won't be cheap to develop, but it'll be a defense that the, the consumer didn't rely on that made in the USA label in buying the product or in paying the price they did for the product and therefore, they can't bring a claim that that they were essentially defrauded by the made the USA representation. Well, I think essentially there's a presumption and a, as well as a perception that buying a product that is labeled made in the USA that a consumer pays slightly more for that product, and so they're paying a premium for whatever reason that drives them, whether it's a patriotic or or, or some other reason that they're paying a premium for that product, and that's what gives rise to the perceived damage to the consumer that they were somehow misled, that they paid more for a product that that had that labeling and were misled, and had they known that, they would have bought maybe a cheaper foreign-made alternative. I'm not sure that that, if that perception is correct today in today's environment, but but certainly there is that thought out there that the consumer is willing to pay a premium for that label. But uh, I think the question will be, as Jay pointed out, would that premium still be paid even if the consumer knew that a button 
was made abroad. I think that that'll be a, a question that that will eventually be raised in these cases. Essentially, the it doesn't matter defense. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately though, the, the 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 people that are driving some of these cases are the plaintiffs' bar, where they perceive the ability to bring class action type claims and you know uh, ultimately settling them where where the only real winner is the plaintiff's lawyer who brought the action. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I think some of, you know, if it's really strict liability, whether the claim is viewed by consumers as necessary for 100% of the product to be made or assembled in the U.S. or 99.9% is enough, maybe somewhat more policy-oriented than not, and maybe after some of these decisions, the California legislature may have to decide whether to revise the statute a little bit. And, Bob, I assume all of these compliance measures increase the cost of the, to the firms and thereby may get passed on to the consumers, which is obviously not a good thing. Yeah, certainly at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen is it increases the cost of doing business, increases the cost of doing the product, manufacturing the product, and at the end of the day, the consumers are the ones who are left you know, paying that amount. Yeah. Well, that policy question will probably be answered above our pay grade, but I want to thank both Bob and Jared for joining me on this podcast. It has been incredibly informative. As always, my name is Jay Levine. You can reach me by email at the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterwright.com, P-O-R-T-E-R-W-R-I-G-H-T. I'm on Twitter at J-A-L-L-L-E-V-I-N-E, J-L Levine. And you, I'm also on LinkedIn. And, Bob, how can people find you? They can reach me uh, via email at rtanus, that's T-A-N-N-O-U-S, at porterwright.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Bob Tannis and on LinkedIn. And, Jared, how about you? I am at jklaus at porterwright.com, and that's J-K-L-A-U-S. Unfortunately, I have not joined the Twitterverse. Uh, I I like it how the two older professionals here are on Twitter and our young associate is not, but we'll remedy that situation soon. <laughs> Thank you guys again. It's been a pleasure, and I hope to do it again soon. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.